As the families are being seated, let me reintroduce myself. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. And um, we are awful happy you are here. It's, um, it's my privilege to be able to go through week two of our series on partnering with grace. Uh, the last time we were together, we, we started a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to finish it today. So turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. The title of the message today is Partnering with Grace, Grace to Serve, Grace to Serve. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. Paul is writing, and he says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than, than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Lord, help us as we study. Three things I'd, I'd like to pull from this passage today. One, packed grace. P-A-C-K-E-D. Packed grace. Two, proletariat work ethic. And three, partnering grace. Now, the title of the series is partner, Partnering with Grace. But there is also an ability for grace to partner with us. And Paul talks about this. Let's, let's, let's talk about what, what grace is filled with. The concept of grace is one that that needs some explanation because primarily we, we use the word to talk about the, the thing we do before we eat. Did you say grace? And I'm not, I'm not mad about that. I'm glad because it implies that if we don't petition God and recognize his grace in our lives, we wouldn't have that which we're about to consume. So I think it's a good thing to call prayer before a meal grace. But it's so much more than that. Grace is packed full of things. Grace has mercy in it. Mercy, we described two weeks ago, as being that which doesn't allow you to receive what you do deserve. Now, some people don't like that definition because they think they deserve more than they really do. But, or they think they deserve something differently than they do. And what we deserve, unfortunately, because we are all sinners, we deserve death. And the consequences that come from a life that has not been lived well, meaning that once we die, there is punishment even after that. It's a horrible place called hell to which nobody should ever go. It's horrible. And it's one of those places that does not ever stop existing. And so God says, I don't want you to go there, and I'm not going to make you suffer for your own misdeeds. So I'm, I'm going to give you mercy and forgive you for everything you've done wrong. Mercy is absolutely vital to our existence because he is a God of justice. And in order to make sure that his justice is not meted out, he applies mercy to our lives, yet at the same time applying justice to Christ so that Christ can take our whooping 
so that punishment is meted out and satisfied, and yet he extends mercy to us so that we can be forgiven of everything rather than having to pay for everything. He's amazing. Now, if you don't think that you deserve death, then you're going to have a hard time receiving mercy. If you think you're good enough to go to heaven on your own, then what's mercy for? By the way, tell me how that works out. None of us are good enough. Now, the Bible does say something about a couple of guys who are pretty righteous. It does. In the Old Testament, it says that Noah was the most righteous man on the earth and that God, and that God chose this man in order to, to save the planet and allow mankind to continue on. And it says he was the most righteous, and, and indeed he was. It also says of Job that he was the most righteous man in the East. But righteous, whenever, whenever God describes somebody as being righteous, is always relative. It means they aren't the worst. They're the best of everybody who's bad. It's that version of righteous. It doesn't mean that they were right enough to somehow be so good that God would commend them and obviously open up the portals of glory and say, oh, how can I keep you out? Look at all you did well. Because they were sinners just like you and me. They were sons and daughters of Adam and Eve and could do no other because Adam and Eve could only produce what they were. Apple trees, God said, a seed will produce that after its kind. And so there's no way that an apple tree can produce a pear, nor can a lemon produce an orange. If you are a sinner, that's all you can produce. So in one generation, one that which did not seem very serious, almost innocuous, eating from a tree of which they were not to eat, blossomed, if you will, using a, a metaphor that is really oxymoronic, blossomed into two brothers fighting to such a degree that one killed the other. One generation. They could only produce what they were. And there's been a degradation ever since, a manifestation of what sin really looks like until we get all these problems on the planet. So when you talk about you being good, you think you're a good person? Eh, relative. No, you're not Hitler. Congratulations. No, you're not the worst of humanity. But the standard is not the worst of humanity. If you want to talk about God's objective viewpoint regarding our righteousness, the standard is Christ. That's the standard. And nobody's reached that bar. Nobody has those hops. The bridge that we would need to build from us to him by way of good works would take a thousand lifetimes to do, and we would only be, if you will, this far in the progress. There's no way we can get there. It is a gap too wide. Why? Because you cannot do enough good to make up for your bad. Impossible. Every time you would build one more foot this way, you'd have to detract from two feet this way. Justice demands punishment. And, 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 and we know that to be true. We don't like it. But you all, everybody in the room, has somebody that in their mind who they believe needs to pay. Everybody does. You can think, well, I'm, I'm talking now, and that person just came to your mind. 
And it's amazing though, that person is never you. But in somebody else's mind, it's you. <laughs> and we, we know justice somehow on the inside of us needs to be meted out. But we never think we deserve it. Because we think we're better than we really are. Because we judge ourselves by ourselves and thereby are deceived into thinking we're more right than we are and we're not. We're wrong. If you understand that to be true, then you are grateful for God's mercy every day. Because I know what I deserve and he's letting me off. Now, it's not that he's ignoring the justice that I need. It's just that he's reapplying it to someone else. And so Jesus Christ took my punishment and in exchange opened up a package of, of grace in which was mercy that allowed me to be forgiven. This is what we call salvation. There are five things that I want to talk about with respect to the package that is grace and what comes on the inside of it. Salvation. Paul talked to the church at Ephesus and said, For it's by grace you are saved, not as a result of works that no man should boast. Grace gives us the ability to come into something we never could have on our own. Our good works just didn't allow us to get there. So as I said about mercy, mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. You get salvation. You not only get delivered from the... And sal salvation is that which delivers you from the thing that would afflict you. Anything at any time. And, and some of the stuff you don't even know you you've been saved from. You didn't get hit by that bus yesterday. That disease did not come on you last week. You don't even know how God attends to your life every day. The fact that you have made it here is evidence of, of his attendance, particular to your life. Salvation is that which allows us the privilege of knowing that we have a home in glory that is secure. And that this, this body may, may pass away, but our spirit will live forever with him. And we bypass judgment. And not only is salvation that which, which contained the mercy necessary to forgive us, but, but grace amplifies the idea of being forgiven and pours it over into being righteous. It's one thing to not be found guilty anymore. It's a whole nother thing for now God to allow us the privilege of being declared as righteous as Christ was because that's the only way we can appear before him. And, and, and then not just to, to, to give us a sense of righteousness beyond our own ability to do things, but a, a righteousness that is imparted and imputed to us, credited to us as a result of Christ's right living. But he also, he goes beyond and doesn't just call us servants. He gives us his name and brings us into the family and adopts us and gives us an inheritance and gives us a hope and a future here on the planet. This is what salvation is. What a deal. All the stuff that we are receiving as a result of God's grace. Stuff we don't deserve, we're getting every day. He's amazing to you. And this is why you always need to wake up every day with Thanksgiving. It does not matter how bad your day went yesterday. And it doesn't matter how ominous your day may look like today. You need to wake up every day grateful. That you are being attended to by God. Oh, it's amazing. So we get salvation. Secondly, we get a calling. 
a sense of, Lord, you just, you just haven't placed me in a different spot. You just haven't given me a new name and, and adopted me into a new family and, and given me a hope. But you're actually making me into something different. You know, the born-again experience is the greatest miracle in all of the world. When you, when you understand who Jesus Christ is and come from a place where you didn't before and, and you get, quote-unquote, what we call saved, that means that you now have denied yourself, picked up your cross, and, and decided to die, and allowed the resurrection power of Christ to be manifest in you in such a degree that your soul has been made new. That the old you is gone. The new you has come. It is not a reformation of the old you. It is not 2.0 version of the old you. The old you died. The new you has come. I realize you look in the mirror and it looks like you. I realize you talk the same way the old you talk. You, you, you think many ways the same way that the old. But there's something that has been birthed on the inside of you that is supernatural and different and never been seen before in the history of humanity. Paul describes it like this, that when a man comes into Christ... The old goes away and dies, and the new comes. He is now a new creation in Christ. That word new creation means something that has never existed before. And this is why we call it born again. It's not reforming old you. Now, old you needs to be reformed. You can't do the same stuff you used to do. You can't be the same person you were. You can't say the same stuff you used to say. Old habit patterns have to be broken. But it is not that you become somebody new by simply breaking those patterns. You are made new, and as a result of being made new, the new you comes out in the old. We are called with a holy calling. Holy. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2. 9 and 10, for you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies who have called you, who has called you out of, out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, you're a holy nation. We're supposed to be different. You are called to be different. You're not called to flow with the rest of the world. That system is flawed. It is fallible. It is finite. It is going in the wrong direction. You don't go that way. You swim upstream intentionally. And holiness is not that which is, which is necessarily seen in, in outward appearance, meaning there are church traditions that say you can't dress a certain way. You know, we're dresses down here if you're a woman and collars up here and no makeup and can't do your hair and You can't wear nice jewelry. And they interpret 1 Peter chapter 3 as being that which is the template for how a woman ought to dress. When the whole idea that Peter's trying to get, get to is a woman taking her identity from how she appears naturally. And, and trying to accentuate who she is on the inside by what she wears on the outside. That never works. But please, may I say with, with, with a large degree of emphasis, look nice. 
Man, ain't nothing wrong with looking nice. Ain't nothing wrong with it. You just can't take your identity from it. I was listening to a woman preach one time, and she was talking about somebody who asked her because she had makeup on. And, and this woman came from the tradition of what holiness looked like with respect to no, none of this. He said, well, why, why, do, you, why do you wear makeup? You should, you should, you, it, it, I mean, you shouldn't wear it. Why do you wear? She said, well, my daddy said if the barn need painting, paint it. That's a woman who found her identity in Christ, not in what she did to her face, but she wanted to look nice. Ain't nothing wrong with looking nice. Holiness is an attitude of heart that says, I want to be like you, Jesus, every day of my life. I want my life today to look more like Jesus than it did yesterday, so help my mouth to reflect that. Help my actions, my heart, my mind, all that I do to reflect that. We have a calling to be that. A calling to be that. And if you're not pursuing that level of holiness, something in your life is desperately missing. Employ that in a hurry. Thirdly, we're, we're called to pursue purpose. Grace comes with a sense of purpose. And it's, it's right in line with our calling, but it's the, the specific reason why God placed you on the planet. All of us have the calling to be holy and to be like him and, and to understand how to bear his person well to everybody who, with whom we come in contact. But when it comes to purpose, all of us have something that God has for us uniquely. And we need to pursue that. The man who gets saved at 20 and winds up going to heaven at, at 80 shouldn't have to ask Jesus when he gets there, what was that last 60 about? I mean, yeah, I earned money for my family, and I put my kids through college, and, you know, I got grandbabies, and we did the grandparent thing, and, and then we retired, and we went down to Florida, and it was, it was wonderful. But, you know, heaven would have been nice at 20 if that was it. What, what was the last 60 about? Don't ever get to heaven asking that question. I beg you, seek him every day as to why you're here. There's a purpose beyond just waking up and being obligated to earn an income from your family or to be faithful to your employer. Those things need to be done. But I beg you, there is a reason beyond that. And you need to find it out. You got to seek them about that. That, that kind of stuff just doesn't, just doesn't show up. All valuable things are hidden. You don't find 20 karat gold nuggets on 14th and H. They just aren't sitting on the ground someplace. All valuable things are hidden. You want to find the deep, valuable things about your life in God? You're going to have to seek. You're going to have to dig away all the flesh, all the dirt that is your life. And you're going to have to get down deep and mine out your purpose for being on the planet. It's there, but he wants you to look for it. Purpose, grace gives you a sense of purpose beyond just living the drudgery of life. Next, we're called to develop the power necessary to carry out the purpose and the calling. God wants you to live with power. Remember I said that the, 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 the born-again experience was the most powerful, the greatest miracle ever? It is. It is. Now, we like to think that raising, seeing somebody rise from the dead is cool. It is. Now, you don't want to say that's second class. 
or somebody who's lame walk or somebody who's deaf hear or blind see. These are things that happened with regularity in the New Testament. Jesus carried on miraculous ministry all the time. Peter, James, John, Paul, miracles flowed at their hands regularly. But we, we think those are much more spectacular than the born-again experience. But I'll say it again. The born-again experience is the greatest miracle out of all. And it's hard to, to put, a, put a qualification, a greatest label on a miracle, and that they're all amazing. But the only reason I'm able to do this with great confidence is because the born-again experience is the only miracle that doesn't pass away. Meaning it lasts forever. Because it changes your heart forever. The cool thing about Lazarus is that he was raised from the dead. Jesus' friend, dead four days, came out hopping still in his mummy clothes. Amazing. Four days dead. And Jesus says, come out, and he comes out. Uh, astounding. But we don't have any narrative on what Lazarus thought about it. Just think about it for a minute. Jesus, am I going to have to go through that again? I'm just saying, you know, I went through it. I went, I went through, I was sick, and it didn't feel good, and, and then I died. And, and you, you, thank you for, okay, I'm glad to be here, but do I have to go through that again? So if you get raised from the dead... You're going to die again. Somebody opens your eyes, they will close. You walk, at some point you won't if you were lame before. The born-again experience is the greatest miracle because it never stops. You were birthed, if you're a Christian, you were birthed in the miraculous. It wasn't just a philosophical change. It wasn't just a better theology. We're not talking about a doxological morphism in your own mind. We're talking about a miracle of transformation that happened in your heart. Yes. If you started supernaturally, why are you not running in the flesh, running in the natural? That was the greatest thing that could have happened to you. Laying hands on somebody who's sick, eh, that should be easy now. The power to be able to do ministry and service is at your fingertips. Jesus said in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from, from on high because in a few days, not many days from now, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will be baptized with fire and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. You can't do what you need to do until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. But when you get it, oh, it's going to be like breathing. Yes. The miraculous ought to be norm for us. It ought not be the, the, the exception to the rule in our life because we are living miracles. Power to live the life he has called us to live so we can serve humanity well. It's in the grace package. And then lastly, the ability to, to come to the end, to have completion. God, whatever he starts, he finishes. So you need to be encouraged. That though, though, though he started something in you, you look in the mirror and, and you, you, you still see you got a long way to go. 
And sometimes you, you, you come up against the same brick wall. Anybody, anybody have a familiar brick wall? One that you've named, you've hit it so many times? You just can't get past this one thing in your life. It just keeps coming up over and over and over. You find Jesus in a way that's neat. You have a great moment of worship. You get revelation. And all of a sudden, bam, you hit it again. I thought I was through with that. How did I wind up here again? You go over and over and over. Listen to me. This is what needs to encourage you every day of your life. That it's not about your, your, your great perfection and your ability to deliver yourself. It's about depending upon his grace to deliver you and to complete what he starts. So when you get to the place where you hit that wall over and again, this is how you need to respond. God, I've come to the end of myself. I've tried my best. I don't know how to make myself any better. I don't. So I want you to know I'm surrendering. I, I thought I did before. But obviously I didn't because I can't get to where I need to be without redoing this. So I'm coming to a different place in my life whereby I'm surrendering at a different level, obviously. So I'm giving up again. I just want you to know I'm giving up again and I'm surrendering myself to you. And I need your power to take me over the edge this time. I can't do it on my own. Why do you have the confidence that that will happen? Because what he starts, he finishes. You don't give up simply because you hit the wall again. You come back to him over and again and say, make me what I know I can't be on my own. I know you're going to finish me. Help me. Whenever you come to the end of yourself, it's always the beginning of God. And God will bring you to the end of yourself. He will do that because he loves you. You, you don't know. Some of y'all need to figure out what's on the other side of tired. You need to figure out what's on the other side of tired. There's a grace to press through even when you feel like you can't. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, best sermon ever, ever. Started out of the blocks. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Out of the blocks. Now, the traditional way to interpret that passage has been those who are bankrupt of soul, God is going to fill with his goodness. And so we need to come as the needy to him on a regular basis. And indeed, I, I'm, I'm convinced that that is a good way to apply that passage. But I don't know that's what Jesus was talking about when he was speaking to the people. The reason being, he was talking, this was his inaugural address, and he was talking to a people that should have occupied this territory with sovereignty for the last 500 years, but did not. Somebody has been their oppressor or occupier for half a millennia. Their grandparents had not known freedom. Their great-grandparents had not known freedom. Their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents had not known freedom. None of these folks knew what it was like to be a sovereign nation. Everybody had put their foot on their neck, squeezed them dry, hated their religion, tried to superimpose their polytheism on their monotheism. Everywhere they looked, they had no friends. These people were tired. And let me, let, me, let me share with you what this sounds like in Greek. The word pneuma, which is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Spirit, the word is pneuma in Greek, which means breath. And the word poor means lack. Jesus speaking to a group of people that were worn out says this, blessed are you who lack breath. For I've got a stash of the kingdom to help you. 
I know you've been worn out as a people. You don't feel like you can go on anymore. But this is the benefit of those who serve me. There's always extra. When you feel like you can't go on anymore, I've got something for you. Anybody run a 400 meters before? You're crazy if you have. Just want you to know. You're crazy. Maybe you've seen somebody run 400 meters, especially those who don't run well. It is a painful race. Painful. And, and the, the first 100 meters looks pretty. You just... You got here. Second 100 meters. Third 100 meters. That last... You can't stride, you can't step. Lactic acid has taken over your entire body. You look ugly. <laughs> Coming across the line, there's just strain and pain all over your face. That's what it looks like when you can't go on anymore. And Jesus says, I got something for you when you come to the end of yourself. There's something I got for you. Because my goal is to help you finish well. That's the grace package. Now, when Paul talks about that the grace did not prove to be vain, that's what he's talking about because the word vain is the word empty. He said grace didn't come empty to me. It came with all this. It came with all this. And he said when I got it, I decided that I needed to work. And so he developed a, a proletariat work ethic. Proletariat is a uh, class of people. It was a word derived in Europe that describes um, something akin but a little bit lower than blue-collar workers. These people were almost indentured servants that owed all of their employment and livelihood to people who were more wealthy. More wealthy. And uh, they worked 10, 12, 14-hour days. Paul says, and I labored more than them all. So this was a man who believed in work. He believed in making sure he put in a good eight to six. Any, any nine to fives in here? I didn't think so. We don't do nine to five is foreign to D.C. Eight to six, maybe seven to seven. We work hard. And Paul said, I labored more than every apostle you can name. Now, I don't know that he was speaking necessarily of the apostles that were in Jerusalem, the main guys who were known as the, the disciples, probably more so about the people who were trying to take the church at Corinth away from him and reduce his influence, and that they were super apostles, so to speak, and, and Paul had to defend himself regularly because he wasn't a very good speaker, and, and that's by his own admission. He knew he wasn't, but, but what people said of him was that his speech was contemptible. That's not just a, a poor speaker. That's like nails on a chalkboard. But his, his letters are weighty. They're amazing. When he writes, oh, gosh, how deep can you get? We're still trying to figure out what he was talking about. <laughs> amazing. But he, and so they, they began to pick apart his leadership, and others came in who had greater eloquence and seemed to be a fabulous leaders, but they were just add-ons. Paul was their father. And, and so Paul was trying to commend himself again over saying, I worked harder than all those jokers. My work just wasn't on Sunday morning. Do you know that public speaking is not a spiritual gift? 
Now, it's nice if you can do it, but it's not a spiritual gift. You want to be a good minister. You want to serve well. You're going to have to do more than just be able to talk to people. People come to me regularly and talk about my pastoral ability. Say, well, how is it working a couple hours a week? <laughs> oh, you think what I, what I do on my stool is all my job? That's what you, here, hang out with me, please. Come show up at my office at 8 a.m. on Tuesday. Just hang out with me all day long. I wish I had a two-hour-a-week job. We work. Most of my labor is Monday through Saturday. Right, Monday's my day off. I forget. Sat Tuesday through Saturday. This is overflow. I spend maybe 8% of my life on this. Leadership development, architectural planning for what a church ought to be, vision, putting people in the right spots, hires, fires, redeployments, establishment of ministry leaders, training. That's all we do in order to create the environment that we have here. Teaching people how to serve so that what is said here is reflected there. So that there's no discontinuity from what you heal, hear and feel in me from the usher that, that greets you in the front door. Children's ministry over here ought to be the same thing. Different message, different ministry. But same spirit behind it that says, I want to serve you with hospitality and my aim is for your good. People out in the, the parking lot have the same idea and spirit that we have right here. And by the way, you ought to obey them when they tell you to go over here. <laughs> Just stop it. Just be a good Christian when you're in your car. Oh, God. These... But they are out there all day, all day, trying to help folk get to church. And there you are. I want that spot right there. Oh, God have mercy. People are serving. They're serving, working hard, hard to try to make sure that you are served well. And lastly, it's when grace partners with you in your efforts that you move into a new level. He said, when I worked, I was working hard, but it really wasn't me. It was the grace of God with me. And Paul does everything he possibly can to not take the credit for anything. Even when he talks about his experience going to heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I know a man, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But he went up. He doesn't even talk about, he doesn't say it was him. Because the experience was so lofty that he doesn't want anybody to think that he was any better than anybody else. And when he's saying he's working hard, you're thinking, ooh, you're amazing. You worked hard and all of that. That's good. Then he throws it in. But it was really the grace. It's really the grace that accompanied me. When you do what you do, and you're serving well, you're going to come to an end where you feel like you just can't go anymore. And that's where grace begins to kick in at a new level so you can figure out what's on the other side of tire. Grace empowers you to serve in ways that are beyond you. Things that we require of our staff, you don't know what happens in our staff meeting. You just see the fruit of it. But we've got some things that we make our staff do. You can't come to church with a with a pout on your face. No, 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 no. You better come in here every week. I don't care if your week has been just tanked. 
If the devil hits you every direction possible and all at the same time, when you walk up in here, you got a smile on your face because your job is to serve these people. They don't need to know how much you're struggling. We're not going to throw a pity party for you on Sunday morning. Now, you and I can talk. And we can pray and we can find God in a significant way. I'm not asking you to overlook everything nor to ignore it. And I'm not asking you to put on a face that's a mask. I'm asking you to find God in the midst of your difficulty. And serve these people as if you had the greatest week of your life. Because you're able to see victory even in the midst of what it feels like as defeat. That's how we require people who are on staff here to serve. It's not just a job, it's discipleship. They're becoming something different. When we talk about what it means to have grace partner with us, I, I can't do this unless I do it by grace. Nobody ought to know except people who need to know how difficult your life is. Grace ought to be the mark. You don't need to brag and say, yeah, I work an 80-hour week. Make yourself seem more significant and more hardworking than the next guy. The only way you can say that is to put the tag on it like Paul. Yeah, the grace of God worked through me. These are the things that allow us the privilege of serving well. And we need servants in this house. We need people to work. We need people to roll up their sleeves and say, what can I do to benefit others like I have been benefited? How can I now give back to those who have given to me? Somebody created this atmosphere. This doesn't happen by accident. Folks pray. Folks fast. Folks do all they can to try to make sure that there are no distractions on a Sunday morning when you walk in here. Zero. And all there is is an amplification of where you need to go, explanation of where you need to go. And within an hour, by the grace of God, we're able to get you there. And you walk out better than when you came in. Now, if you have experienced that on a regular basis... Give it back. Freely you have received, yes, sir. freely give. Figure out how to, how to serve with grace. Let's pray.